This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. When we met, she was a 17-year-old dreamer from El Salvador. When we met, I was working as a cleaner in the building where WTOP and La Mera Mera were established. She's 24 now and no longer dreaming. In those seven years, you transformed from essentially a janitor to now you're running the La Mera Mera radio station here. I oversee the daily basis operation of the station. The story of Carla Reyes. Coming up in this episode of Colors. The death of George Floyd led to sweeping legal changes around the country and in some cases pitted police, communities, and politicians against each other. We have, generally in Montgomery County, it's true in many jurisdictions, a, a, a good police force. That doesn't mean they there is not a need for reform. Tom Hawker is president of the county council in Montgomery County, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C. The stakes are higher with police because they have the, the power of life and death to take away people's freedom and to take away people's lives. There have been numerous legal changes around the country to address police forces going too far when it comes to dealing with black and brown communities. But there are questions about some of the new laws and regulations. Is there a rush to judgment in doing this? Um, maybe. We'll discuss how to reimagine policing and putting communities back together. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Plus, on this episode, my colleague Sean Anderson joins me to talk about Juneteenth. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. My name is Katie Musselman. I am a Korean adoptee who was raised and currently live in Hardleysville, Pennsylvania. My name is Rajesh. I'm American, but my race is mixed with Indian and Hispanic. My name is Jarena Thomas. I'm an African-American woman living in Washington, D.C. And I'm J.J. Green. I'm Black. And this is Colors. We're now into our second season of Colors. It's a dialogue on race in America. This program started as a result of the death of George Floyd. And frankly, every single state and city in the country and most even small towns, I would argue, were impacted by this. And there have been changes. There have been some for the better and some I'm not so sure about. Some that have pleased people and some that have upset people. I live in Montgomery County in Maryland. On this program with me today is Tom Hucker. He is the president of the Montgomery County Council. He's going to talk with me about the county's commitment to reimagine policing and some new laws aimed at improving transparency, the review of body cam footage and police training, among other things. He's also going to talk about 
how far they've gone so far with some of these laws and whether that was the right thing to do. And we want to welcome you to the show today, Mr. Hucker. Hey, thanks so much for having me, JJ. First, let me just start off and get you to give me your general view on the racial climate in our country and by extension, our state and county. Boy, that's that's a uh, pretty broad question. Um, You know, I guess I'm of two minds, uh, really. I mean, it's in some ways so frustrating and tragic that we're still having conversations um, at every level about race and uh, equality and equity in our count in our country you know, 400 years now after the first enslaved Africans were brought here. But um, in my lifetime, I, we've, you know, never had such a vigorous debate about it, I think, in so many difficult but constructive ways. And we've seen, you know, marches all over the country in the wake of the murder of George Floyd um, and so many others that have been victims of, of police violence. And you know, to see 60 peaceful marches just in Montgomery County alone, and the fact that that um, that those those were happening countywide in all different types of neighborhoods in the most what I think is the most diverse county in the in the nation, um, and that they've resulted in I think lots of lots of changes at the level of countywide legislation, but also at the level of um, just changing people's hearts and minds and making people much more aware. I think of equity issues that they weren't um, and inequities that they, they haven't been aware of. And there were lots of conversations between just neighbors and friends and coworkers that I think have been very, very constructive. And while those are often difficult, they're exactly, I think what's very much what's needed. So I'm, I'm, you know, I think if you're doing this work, you have to be optimistic. Generally, I'm optimistic about the future because we've had this, this big reckoning this year and we're, yeah. we're certainly not done with it. Yeah, you know, you mentioned a couple of things that I'm going to touch on during the course of this interview, uh, and some of that is the legislation and some of the other organizations and stakeholders in the county uh, as as a general matter. And you mentioned that some of this is dif- difficult indeed because you have a lot of different people of different mindsets and just as diverse in mindset as the county is in terms of uh, its racial makeup. Can you give me a sense, give us a sense of what that racial makeup is and how this last year has impacted, to your knowledge, these racial groups and their ability to interact with you, the county and the government? Um, I think it, it actually sort of uh, predates the, you know, George Floyd's murder and the events just of this this past year. Um so, you know, let me talk. I know you have listeners from all over. So um, just to give them a sense of Montgomery County, we're w- one of the largest um, suburban counties in certainly in the Metro Washington area, over over a million residents. Um, and we have residents coming here from all over the world, from 150 countries, speaking 170 languages, um, which is a, a significant challenge for, you know, providing social services and schools and everything else. But um, what is, um, uh, what, you know, what, what's interesting, like we have, uh, that diversity is reflected in a number of ways. We have four, if you look at, uh, you know, the top 10 diverse communities that wallet hub and others put out from time to time, we have four of the top 10 in the nation, Germantown, Gaithersburg, Silver Spring, um, and Rockville all, um, are among the diver- most diverse communities in the nation. And they're pretty typical of nearly all of Montgomery County. Yeah, you know, that diversity, there's always some um, some element of that uh, on display, no matter where you go. 
One thing that has been very interesting to me, one of the most glaring issues that's come up since the whole George Floyd uh, awakening or reckoning, one of the most glaring issues that's come up is the anger that's been welling up in police departments across the country. And I've noticed some of that in our own county. And I'll put it to you this way. Um, and you're aware of this, but we're not here to engage in that. But we had a tragedy in my own neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the police department, which I think is one of the best in the country, um, responded. And they did some amazing work along with neighborhood action teams and people from the county and folks from your office and other places that did some great work there to get with that situation under control. On one day, I approached an officer just to see how it was going with him and how he was doing. And I was stunned when the officer said essentially to me, how dare you? And he was referring, as we learned through the conversation that I was having, with him after he made that comment to the fact that police across the country had been lumped into one big category and were been they they'd been according to him beat up on because of what happened with these officers in Minneapolis and he said you as a part of the press are responsible for this and I thought about it and you know he wasn't wrong because on many occasions we in the press didn't do what we should have done effectively by separating out and not lumping all police together we were just rushing to report this story and that was wrong and a lot of very well-intentioned hard-working police officers were essentially uh, lumped into this category and it really took a big toll on their morale and he also said to me Politicians were complicit in that action, too. And I'm wondering what your concern is or what your view is regarding that concern. No, that's that's uh, very well put. And it's, it's a very difficult issue. On the one hand, um, I think what, what you said at the beginning is right. We have in generally in Montgomery County, it's true in many jurisdictions, um, a, a good police force um, by many metrics. They are um, they're not paid. I think as well as they should be compared to some of our surrounding jurisdictions, but in general, compared to an awful lot around the country, they're paid better, they're trained better. Um, and, uh, they have access to, um, better equipment and, and, uh, they, they are under the, they're supposed to be working under the leadership of what's, you know, considered a progressive County executive and council on the other hand, that doesn't mean they, there is not a need for reform. And hopefully we'll, we'll talk about that. But just since I've been on the council in the last um, few years, we've um, changed our, our use of force policy. And I have a, a bill to address um, uh, police body camera videos that uh, were um, central to this recent incident in East Silver Spring with a five-year-old child. Um, yeah. I think in any, we all know in any large institution, um, there are people who are good at their job and many others that are not so good at their job. And it's the, it's the role of management and it's the role of elected officials who um, make budget decisions. Um, but particularly the, you know, the executive branch management, the, the, the police uh, chain of command, the police chief, and ultimately the County executive that, that supervises all of them um, to manage their staff and to do it the right way and just pretend we're not talking about police pretend, you know, there are good and bad bus drivers, right? 
And there are lots of uh, measures in place to make sure our bus drivers aren't on their cell phones or aren't taking drugs or aren't operating you know, under the influence or have the right training, uh, et cetera. Um, even when we change routes um, or uh, begin new equipment, they get you know special training for weeks just in, in that. Um, police are no different than any other institution, but the margin of error um, is even, you know, um, the, the stakes are higher with police because they have the, the power of life and death um, to take away people's freedom and to take away people's lives. Um, and, um, you know, obviously bus drivers can cause fatalities too, but um, it's, there, there's just a lot less scrutiny of that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think to your point, yes, people need to um, be discerning and to be open to nuance and, uh, we all teach our treat our kids uh, or teach our kids, I think, to treat people as individuals and not as just monolithic um, members of one group. Um, there's no there's no all, all good police or all bad police that they're you know, they're they're a large institution like anyone else. And they need training and they need public support um, if they're going to perform their jobs well for the residents of the county. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, you know, this whole business of uh, nuances is, is something that we in the press have learned. It's, I certainly have. I sat there watching George Floyd's life leak out of him on a dirty street in Minneapolis, and I couldn't stop crying. And right. um, it, it, so, you know, there was this need to do something, engage in some way to address it. And this 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 program, this podcast is what came out of that. But in the process, you know, there was a lot of reporting and a lot of police officers were injured across the country, wounded by that reporting, which was unfair. Uh, and so, I, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm sorry that we did that. Um, but you're exactly right. There are some really bad police officers in this country and there have been some bad police officers in our county over time. But I do know some really good people uh, in our county who work on the police force. And I spend a lot of time talking to them now. One of the reasons I understand from conversations why officers are upset is that laws have been changed in response to issues brought up during this time frame from last year with George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement, that were designed to address unfair targeting of people of color some of them feel as though they are hamstrung in their ability to do their jobs. Do you see what the the issue is there? And can you explain to us how that's supposed to work, at least in Montgomery County? Sure. Um, I believe you're speaking probably about the use of force bill that we passed. Yes. Um, there was already, like there is in many areas of policy, an existing use of force law in place that my colleagues and I believe believe needed an update. And um, we debated it at length. Uh, we consulted with experts around the country. Um, we heard testimony from individuals all over the county, um, including uh, the police chief who supported the legislation that we passed um, and had you know numerous amendments and much feedback on elements of it. Um, and ultimately we updated the policy. Um, I wouldn't expect, we have, you know, say 1,300 police officers, roughly. I wouldn't expect everybody to have the same opinion on, you know, football teams or use of force policy. Um, and so it's no surprise that you've heard from people who will complain about the new policy. Um, I don't know. I certainly hope that there are plenty of police officers that are 
happy with the new policy. Um, and I know there are many, many residents that are happy with the new policy. And there are a lot of details in it. It's been a while since I looked at this was has been years. But basically, the you know, the principle is that police officers are supposed to um, consider and use uh, less lethal force uh, as much as possible. So if you have an unarmed individual, um, we don't want you starting with your service revolver. We want you starting with um, the use of hands, potential use of a baton, um, verbal commands, obviously, um, and um, you know, eventually tasers mm-hmm. before a service revolver is drawn. Mm-hmm. And we've actually, shortly after I started on the council and I serve on the public safety committee, so I'm in a lot of these hearings, there was a death uh, due to an incident with a extended, probably improper, but extended use of a taser. Um, and we have the police department met with um, the makers of the taser, now Axon, the company. Uh, they've made some changes to the, um, the manufacturing uh, in terms of how long it can be used and, and how the trigger works, uh, as I understand it. And we have now invested in a whole new generation of tasers. Uh, we, we basically took them out of the hands of our officers for a while, um, the police chief did, when, um, when we felt they were potentially lethal. And then we've, the council's funded and the police force has bought and distributed a whole new generation of tasers that we believe are supposed to be um, you know, less lethal, uh, but still effective. So, um, you know, police, police sometimes need to use um, lethal force, um, but we want to make sure it's as rare as possible um, and that they use non-lethal force as often as possible. And some of that is on the prevention side, too. I don't want to just talk about a a police, a street interaction with a police officer. Um, You know, progressives have been urging for years uh, more investments in social services uh, so that so that people don't reach the level of desperation or the level of um, undiagnosed mental illness and other things that often can lead to crimes um, and to tragic consequences. Um, So we have one, until recently, we had one mobile crisis unit, for example, um, which is social workers with access to a vehicle uh, that can can respond relatively quickly to an individual who's in crisis, but mostly they stay in the office because they only have one office for the whole county. Um, shortly after um, Robert White was, um, Robert White was uh, a, a neighbor of mine who was killed by a police officer um, after when he was just sort of walking down the street. He used to go on walks all the time and a police officer responding to another call, saw him and had a uh, engagement that went south and resulted in Robert's death after um, he refused some commands and charged the officer. Um, but uh, that's that's the sort of thing that if neighbors had potentially um, known him and said there's you know there's a there's a neighbor that might be experiencing a crisis out here uh, we and we had more mobile social workers available to him uh, before he was uh, engaged with a police officer uh, he wasn't he was not armed um, it might have resulted in a very different circumstance yeah. same thing with Fanon Burhi, who was also killed in my district by a police officer he had been an Uber driver I understand. Who had struggled with mental health issues was not not you know uh, uh, medicated that and uh, had lost his job that morning and was in you know great distress. Crisis. And, right, exactly. So now we've expanded with the budget we just passed. JJ, sorry for my long answer, but for in two weeks, two weeks ago we passed our budget. It include well, I passed a supplemental appropriation with the help of my colleagues last summer mid year to hire to expand our mobile crisis units and 
the county executive put more money that was approved by my colleagues, again, in this budget. So now we're going to go from one crisis unit to six. Mm-hmm. So that means they're going to be able to be housed in like fire stations or other government facilities around the county and get to individuals in crisis in five or 10 minutes and not in half an hour. Yeah. Um, and that, that might make a lot of difference. I'm sure it will. I do know this. Um There have been issues and there have been questions and there have been concerns that have been brought up. But uh, right or wrong, what I can say is what I've seen from the Montgomery County Council and certain individuals in particular, and you're one of those people, is a forward-leaning approach to dealing with some of the stuff. Now, some of the stuff some of your colleagues have said, I'm not so sure about it. I think one of them at one point mentioned that, you know, it would be be best if, if, if we never saw police officers in our neighborhoods. And I just don't think that's right at all, especially considering what I and my neighbors have gone through in the last year. If it wasn't for the police, right. you know, I'm not sure where we'd be. So I think that kind of thinking may be a bit too forward leaning. But what I will say is this, you've done some very aggressive actions to deal with some things. And I want to ask a question here, and I'm going to frame it first. One of the reasons why officers have been upset, and I mentioned to you this business about uh, the uh, excessive force policy, and you talked about that situation. But then there's this other element of decriminalization of marijuana. One particular law enforcement official told me that you can get arrested for drinking a beer on the street, but you can't for smoking a joint. Is that right? And is that was that a, was there was there was there a rush to judgment in doing this, making this change? Um, maybe uh, those laws are made um, at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say so. You know, there's probably uh, limit limits to to you know how how much to talk about. It. I was in the legislature when we decriminalized small amounts of marijuana. Yeah, um, and. It was interesting because the leadership of the House Judiciary Committee at the time had bottled up the bill for years and continued to bottle up the bill. And we eventually had to uh, assemble what was called the discharge. But this was very, you know, polls had shown we we were deluged with resident requests to decriminalize marijuana. Um, and um, polls showed it was very, very popular with the public, partly because um, of the the uh, disproportionate use by black and brown youth and the the way it was used. Um, to stop them for um, use of marijuana and then search things and then get people into um, additional charges when they were not, you know, necessarily harming any, anyone. Uh, they were they were just smoking a joint. Um, there, there was a, it was actually a discharge petition that uh, many of us signed to to get the bill out of committee and onto the House floor. Um, and we, there were a lot of precautions that were still left in the bill. Um, to make sure that people couldn't use marijuana while they're driving um, and that it wasn't um, used by people under, I believe, 18 and and many other things um, that it wasn't, you know, just completely a f- free for all, um, but that it was it was regulated like other um, other substances. Um, I can't really speak to why. Yeah, I mean, I know there's 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 a lot of community concern about open drinking, uh, drinking, you know, open container laws in, in public areas, but I think much less so than there used to be. And uh, actually, during the pandemic, when we've actually shut down a number of streets um, and opened them up for neighborhood gatherings and for safe, you know, walking and biking uh, in neighborhoods and close them to cars, uh, we've also worked with the Parks Department in some places like in Newell Street in South Silver Spring. It's very popular now. They have a closed off 
block where an area that's very dense housing with no park. And uh, we, we, my staff's been helpful to them, them to bring in food trucks and the parks department has uh, allowed uh, outdoor, um, outdoor drinking there, um, you know, within certain hours. Um, and yeah. we're working with residents on noise limitations and things like that, but it's very popular for people to be able to, in a safe space, nobody's driving, sit at a picnic table in the sunshine with your kids and, and have a beer that was made maybe at Denizen's, you know, cra- uh, manufactured across the street in South Silver Spring. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think, I think minds are changing on that and, um, people are probably more open to it in closed off urban areas than, mm-hmm. than in, you know, a lot of it, others. The concern that many have had, and I, I will confess, I have a concern too um, about some of this, um, and it's because it's the behavior after the consumption, regardless of what it is, whether it's beer, liquor, yeah, weed, or whatever. It's the behavior after that consumption that's confronted uh, me and some other people that I know in our own neighborhoods. And this behavior is coming from some people who are black and brown. Um, and it's not because they just, you know, want to mind their own business and do what they want to do. But this is coming from people who are known troublemakers. Yeah. And they know that the police won't do anything or can't do anything. And they are essentially abusing the changes that are taking place. That's the reason why I ask you the question about the rush to judgment. Yeah. And I recognize this isn't your fault. Not None of this is your fault. We're not blaming anybody here. But right. it's a, it's an issue that's out there that I wonder if there's going to be some discussion about it in the future. But that's the reason why. It's, it's the behavior after the consumption that's gotten a lot of people concerned. And, you know, it would really be interesting to see what would happen in the near future to that. No, that that all I think that's that's all fair. I'd have to know more about what you mean by known troublemakers. Uh, it's I think it's not accurate um, that if police have told you that they can't do anything about uh, you know an individual sitting on a um, unless the law has changed uh, you know smoking pot in public, um, they're supposed to I thought issue a uh, civil citation you know essentially a warning with I think a, it's got like a twenty five dollar fine or something, but it's not a criminal. Um, you know, we don't want young people having a criminal record and having a hard time finding housing or hind- finding a job because they smoked a joint. I don't, you know, there's very few people I think that think that's a good idea. Um, writing them a, a ticket for something that, um, you know, the state assembly at the time, at least, unless the laws changed, believed that that was a, a reasonable thing to um, deter open consumption, um, but not expand uh, criminal records. Um, so I think that's where they they landed on that as I as much as I remember the law. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get that. And, and you're exactly right. Um, but in certain places, our county included, but certainly far afield from here, there are those that have that concern about people who are and who recognize that this is an opportunity for them to, in some cases, terrorize their neighborhoods or a neighborhood because right. they recognize they won't be dealt with beyond a civil citation which some of them just ignore but but the but but the the bottom line here is you stepped up to do all this at the right time i mean a lot of it as you said was was happening beforehand and uh, a lot's been been going on uh, in the interim since it since it took place but there's a lot more work to be done on this so um i'd I'd like to to hear what you have to say about the future here uh, of where all of what's taking place in this this county and the state and beyond is going in terms of race from 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 Tom Hucker's position. Um, 
Well, good question. Again, another broad one. I could probably talk about it all day, but um, I mean, I think uh, there's there's additional need for, um, I think two things, both support of our police department generally, uh, in many ways, what you're saying is uh, true, that morale is quite low. And um, yes, we're going we're going through sort of an inflection point now, I think, where there are there are people who some of whom may have never maybe should have never been a police officer. But now the rules are changing a little bit, you know, uh, the way they look at it. And they're they're dropping out. Um, there's there's a number of our police officers that have signed up to be firefighters or moved to other jobs and some that are moving to other jurisdictions. Um, and we're having we've had for years um, long before George Floyd, a yeah. hard time. Uh, filling training classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to pay our police officers better. We we are in the back of the pack of like 10 jurisdictions around us. Um, and I think we need to to train them better. And I think we need to have better rules. And to your earlier point, um, support the department and treat people as individuals. I think the vast majority of them are there for the right reasons and trying to serve the public and keep everyone safe. Um, and people that shouldn't be police officers and don't want to follow the rules and protect the public. Um, want to discriminate or use uh, use of force um, in un- unwise uh, in cruel ways, then need, don't need to be on our force at all. That's right. Um, and that's what, you know, we, I think, I think we have, you know, something like 1300 officers. Um, but, um, and, and, and most are, you know, on, on every day are doing um, a lot of good things, but then that didn't stop two officers in that video that everyone's seen in East Silver Spring from mm-hmm. handcuffing a five-year-old screaming in his face, calling him a little beast and coaching his mom on how to beat him in a way that avoids a, a child abuse charge. Um, right. That is horrifying. And it's horrifying to know that it happened, you know, on our watch and that we found out about it through um, another member of the media who looked at the court record. We happened to be being sued over that. And we found out when it was in the paper, we were not notified about it by our own police department. So now I have had to write a bill to make sure that we're not only capturing these thousands and thousands of hours of video and body worn cameras every year, which I've been supportive of since we stood up the program five years ago, but when there's an investigation involving anything uh, like um, uh, serious use of force or a child or discrimination, um, that those get brought to uh, the attention of the police chief right away and that he has to, he or she has to bring those to the attention of the county executive, the county council and the state's attorney. I was shocked to find out from the the state's attorney when I asked him if there was going to be an investigation of that. He said um, <laughs> that even if it were clearly, a, you know, under the, the definition of assault, that's a misdemeanor and the statute of limitations runs out in 12 months. And he found out after 14 months. And he said he, you know, routinely, not routinely, with some regularity, if he learns about questionable police conduct, it's often after a year has already gone by and he can't do anything about it. So that's why this bill that I brought before the council, I believe, is so important, because we set up a body camera program to make sure that we were increasing transparency and increasing public confidence, not just to store thousands of hours of video over in the police vault. Um, And the public and the elected officials need to know what our police force is doing. And that's exactly what the bill is supposed to do. It's also guarantees that they are or or, um, sets an expectation that they're going to close investigations within 180 days which is Department of Justice best practice, um, because sometimes the investigations go on for years and years and the harmed party doesn't know one way or the other, nor does the police officer who was accused of something. So even like the police union, they're very supportive of just closing investigations. So an officer knows one way or another, I did something wrong and I get a fine and I move on with my life or I'm acquitted, you know, or exonerated or whatever. Um, 
but it doesn't do anybody any good to just have an investigation that goes on for years. But that's what we have right now sometimes. Okay. Um, one really quick question, and then I'm going to ask you for any final thoughts you, you have. Sure. Was this whole idea of defund the police a rhetorical thing, or were people really serious about that? It depends on which people you mean. I mean, there are certainly... <laughs> I mean, the people that were actually pushing this idea, there were some politicians that were doing it, some people who were calling themselves yeah, yeah, journalists, yeah. but they're really activists. I mean, were they really serious about it? And this my, my question, too, is rhetorical, because of course they weren't. They they. But my question to you is, was this designed to jumpstart the conversation about how to fix training problems and developmental issues that you've sort of laid out here? I think just like the uh, just like the police department, the residents aren't monolithic either. And I think some people who have made calls for defunding the police actually do want to defund the police. Some don't believe there should be any police. I've talked to residents that just don't believe in police, period, and think that it would, you know, um, the police bring crime um, and uh, um, um, make residents unsafe because, you know, they've been, there's enough residents that have been harmed by police, unfortunately, um, and we'd be better off eliminating the whole department. There's others who believe in shrinking the police force quite a bit and just making sure we have police available um, to respond to very violent crimes, but not just routine patrols of neighborhoods to prevent crime and things like that. Okay. Um, and there's, there's, there's others who may have been using it rhetorically, like you suggest. All right, last, very last thing. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to add before we finish out this edition of Colors? Well, I, I did want to say just on that, um, your your previous question, uh, too, on the, you know, policymaking is an ongoing challenge. And the, the country's changing, the county's changing, and policy needs to keep up with that. And we have hundreds of years of law that don't always reflect, you know, today's values or today's um, institutions or necessities. So, I think one great thing that we did a few years ago under the leadership of then president, council president Nancy Navarro, um, two years ago was we passed a racial equity and social justice act for the county. And um, it it required the uh, creation of a, of a um, racial equity and social justice office. We funded and hired a chief equity officer who works under the county executive. And then we have hired racial analysts now uh, working for the county council. So just like we have analysts that for every proposed piece of legislation, write up a policy analysis and a fiscal analysis. We now also write up a racial justice analysis. And I think that's been a very good thing because it has allowed council members to um, learn about things they wouldn't have necessarily known to draw in research from other jurisdictions and to consider policies uh, based on uh, to make, make sure there aren't unintended consequences that that uh, and that our policies that we're advancing actually move us toward our goal of um, achieving greater racial equity and social justice. Um, and that's been really powerful. I mean, I started as a community organizer. I used to argue for, you know, living wage laws in Montgomery County here 20 years ago and the Purple Line and things like that. And among the arguments I would make is we should do this for new, all these numerous reasons, but also it'll be disproportionately helpful to our low income and our black and brown residents. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that mattered with people. Sometimes it didn't. Now it's the actually the policy of the county. So it's even more powerful. Yeah. Um, and uh, I can tell you um, it's um uh, it's just it's uh, comforting to know that I think it's not just rhetoric. It's a it's an aspiration that we all have bought into. We've all voted for that policy. We've hired the staff and funded those positions. And we're going to continue to look at the policy we're making and the budget decisions we make through a racial equity and social justice lens. And I think that's very good for our policymaking in the future. Well, Tom Hunker, Montgomery County Council member and president of the council, 
Barack Obama started out as a community organizer, too. And look where he ended up. So I'm not going to ask you that question or any political question here, but I'm just saying the work you're doing is something that's going to be around for a while and people are going to people are going to remember it. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us on Colors. Hey, thanks so much for having me, JJ. Thanks for all your good work. We're going to be back in 90 seconds with a special look at Juneteenth. But in the meantime, if you have any questions or comments or show suggestions or ideas or just any thoughts you want to share, send us an email. We're at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. You're listening to Colors. My name is Aya Sadiq. I am Middle Eastern. I'm Palestinian. I have a light complexion and green-colored eyes. Some would say I even look Caucasian. So often, I blend in with white Americans. It's the moment I begin talking that people realize I'm not from there. Where are you from, they ask, a question often too complicated for me to answer. And although I'm originally Palestinian, I almost always settle with, I was born and raised in Dubai. A part of me was afraid of saying Palestine. As a Muslim Arab in a post-9-11 world, I knew I needed to be aware of how I could be perceived the second I decided to come to the United States. This was in America where fascists and white supremacists and Islamophobes reigned the country. Every time I was asked where I was from, I felt as though it came with the intention of strategically categorizing me into this hierarchical system of power based on skin color and identity. To me, that is America. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Juneteenth, June 19th, 1865. It was the day that Union soldiers, led by Major General Gordon Granger, landed in Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free. And you should note, this was two years after... President Abraham Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Today is June 18th, 2021. Tomorrow, June 19th, 2021, will be the first federal holiday observing Juneteenth. Joining us now on Colors is someone I've known for a long time, have a great deal of respect and trust in and for, and someone who's been on this, this, this podcast before. His name is Sean Anderson. He's uh, a, a newsman. Uh, that's the old word we used to use, a newsman. <laughs> but he's a news professional who has done a lot of things uh, from sports to news and many things in between. He, by the way, is one of the afternoon news anchors here at WTOP 103.5 FM in Washington, D.C. And one of the things he's covered uh, in both of those venues has been issues regarding race. And as Juneteenth has become a national holiday, I wanted to see what he thought about this. Um, and, you know, Sean is a white male, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I, I would say someone who's very aware of uh, all issues uh, in our society. So I wanted to get your thoughts on um, on what this means, uh, Juneteenth as a national holiday. Uh, JJ, thanks for having me here. Uh, I'll tell you what, it, it, it came upon us suddenly. I mean, we knew yeah. that there always had been a movement to try to do this, but how it came together yep. is, is such a pleasant, wonderful surprise that, you know, it's been a little tough to sit back and, and, and take it in. But this is what comes to my mind immediately. 
we in America mm-hmm. have this big tradition of celebrating freedom. Obviously, July Fourth, we celebrate Independence Day when uh, when the when the uh, Declaration of Independence was established. We use Memorial Day to celebrate our freedom in honoring those who died in service. We use Veterans Day to honor our freedom and honor those who served. So. Freedom is such a big issue in this country, and, and we celebrate it greatly. What better way in America to celebrate freedom than to acknowledge an event like June 19th, mm-hmm. 1865? Now, there, there are some people who say, well, you know, why don't we celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation and use that as the jumping off point? Yeah. And it's a reasonable argument, but here's why this is more important. Think of this. People in Texas were completely unaware that Abraham Lincoln had given out the Emancipation Proclamation, so they were laboring under the old rules, the the old legalities. Mm-hmm. And here, the the Civil War was already over, and they still didn't know that they were free people. Yeah. Well, what an event! I, I mean, it's mind-boggling to me that if you were someone in that situation at that time to all of a sudden learn that you are free. I mean, uh, th- there's no greater feeling in, in life than, than something like that. And, I, and I'm going to say this, and this is no, respect, or no disrespect, rather, to Dr. Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. but I think that June, Juneteenth should be, in the minds of all Americans, particularly black Americans, but in the minds of all Americans, maybe a more significant holiday. And what I mean is that we are truly celebrating freedom in this regard. I mean, we're cel- uh, you know, in January, we celebrate Dr. King as we should for all of his accomplishments during the civil rights movement. But the just that, that mm-hmm. note of freedom that happened at that moment for those people in 1865, I think that's the ultimate American experience. And, and I think it's, it, it ultimately should be maybe a more significant holiday for all of us. You, you can't, you can't overstate that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that freedom thing is, it's, I mean, it's amazing, and you're exactly right about it. Um, how how will you celebrate Juneteenth? What, what How do you think that uh, Juneteenth should be celebrated? Are there specific ways? Well, for me personally, I think it's going to allow me, it, it, for example, tomorrow when I when I you know have a few moments, what I want to do is I want to go back and read. I want to go back and 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 refresh my knowledge. Of of not not just Civil War era, but of Juneteenth itself and how that came about and how it was why folks in Texas didn't know that they were free. Yeah. I want to I want to know more about uh, you know what is behind it and and I think it, it gives us an opportunity and I and I like to do this say on you know around July Fourth as well. I like to go back and look at you know the the the. The sprouts of freedom, mm-hmm. and and you know how things came about. You know, I like to look at the Revolutionary War and and how it, you know, the, the the time leading up to it and leading up to Thomas Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence. Independence. I want to know more about Galveston, Texas, and and what led up to that to that moment, and and take the opportunity every year though to to think, and and say, man, we are lucky people. We are lucky people. To live in this country, and and be able to to mark a moment like that, and and I think it's, you know, for the the black community, it it, it it's just 
Well, JJ, you, you've asked me my thoughts about it. I'm curious to hear what you have to say, because, uh, you know, as black American, I mean, this this probably has has warmed your heart to to, to no end. Yeah. You know, um, that day, June 19th and 1865, I can in my mind's eye just go back to the day, the moment when some of those folks found out that they have been enslaved two years longer than they needed to be, uh, the overwhelming sense of, of elation that, um, they were, that they were free. So for me, the way I, I, I would observe uh, Juneteenth is, is it's gathering. It's, it's about sharing food, stories. And, you know, for some, it's, 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 it's barbecue. And <laughs> some, some folks, it's sipping red drinks. This is historically speaking, uh-huh. which symbolizes the blood that was shed by Africans and African-Americans uh, in the cause of freedom for all of us. I mean, a lot of, it means a lot of different things to, to me. And it's not a new thing. It's something I've been aware of since I was young. But having it as a national holiday is really important right now because as the sands of time slip through each and every hourglass of our lives, each one of us has one, as those sands slip through that glass, there is less and less time for us to look at what's really important. And what's really important to me when it comes to this is the hourglasses of those people who are finished. And some of them, their hourglasses were finished early because they, they, they were the victims of hatred. Mm-hmm. But then there were these other people whose hourglasses were finished um, because they knew they would be facing certain death by standing up for freedom, but their hourglasses were finished early as well, and they did it. They, they, they volunteered their lives for us. So for me, it's very important to take some time to just reflect. As you said, you're going to do that reading, and interestingly enough, and Sean is a voracious reader, <laughs> folks, every single day. I am going to read a little bit, too, about mm-hmm. this, but also have some conversations with relatives, some of the older relatives about this, because it is indeed, as you said, a very momentous day. My name is Katie Musselman. I am a Korean adoptee who was raised and currently live in Harleysville, Pennsylvania. My name is Rajesh. I'm American, but my race is mixed with Indian and Hispanic. My name is Jarena Thomas. I'm an African-American woman living in Washington, D.C., And I'm J.J. Green, and this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. My co-host on the next episode is one of the best and most trusted reporters in the country. Her name is Ellen Nakashima. She works for the Washington Post, and she happens to be a Japanese-American. I see... America's ability to confront and grapple with racial issues as a strength. I think if if America were to to try to repress that, it would be a liability for national security. And our guest will be another of Ellen's Washington Post colleagues, Michelle Lee, who happens to be president of the Asian American Journalist Association. It's definitely been a really difficult year to be both a journalist and an Asian American. Especially after the Atlanta spa murders. Um, I had a member who was going to sleep after 
finding out about the shooting and had to wake up for her 3 a.m. broadcast shift and she had to go on air. And she DM'd me at 2 a.m. saying, I'm, I woke up, I cried all night, I, w- I woke up crying and I still have to put on my game face on air and I, d- I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Time to go. And before we go, it's important as we observe Juneteenth to say thanks to all those and the families of those who find their names on the African-American Civil War Memorial. All 209,145 names. It's a beautiful memorial located at 1925 Vermont Avenue in Northwest Washington. Special thanks to all those who fought and died for civil rights and for those who fought and still live for civil rights. Thanks to everyone out there now whose names don't appear on any of these memorials or anywhere, but are heavily involved in the quest for civil rights. To the Colors team, thanks to Mike Jakaitis, Hillary Howard, Sean Anderson, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, and thanks to Shelby Steele, Bedford Collins, Dorothy Gilliam, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Cortland Cox, the Truth Speakers, and the Truth Seekers. Thanks to all of those who stand up to the issue of race, regardless of the social and peer pressure to avoid it. And for the music, thanks to Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. Most of all, a gigantic thank you to you for listening to us. And finally, just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.